1: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network
2: everybody, and welcome back to New Books from the Medieval Institute Publications, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nikki, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Brian Gastel and Dr. Catherine Carter at Western Carolina University about their new edited and translated edition of John Gower's Confessio Amantis. Um, So welcome to the podcast, uh, Dr. Brian and Dr. Catherine. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourselves and your research before we begin talking about Gower.
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, So I'm a professor of English here at Western Carolina University, where I teach primarily uh, uh, early British literature, among a number of other things. I got my Ph.D. at the University of Delaware, and my research focuses primarily upon Gower uh, and Chaucer and other late Middle English uh, texts and authors.
0: And uh, I teach in uh, English education here, I also teach some of the poetry classes. I got a Ph.D. in literature at Delaware also, that is how we met. And I have several collections of uh, contemporary poetry with LSU Press, and I write a lot of poems.
2: Wow, it seems that you guys cover quite a range in terms of your research and your talents. Um, So could you tell us a little bit about who John Gower is and what drew you to editing such a lengthy poem um, of his?
1: (laughs) Uh, Sure. So uh, John Gower was a poet who lived at the end of the 14th and the beginning of the 15th centuries. Uh, He was a contemporary and a friend of Geoffrey Chaucer's, who more people probably are aware of than than Gower himself. Um, But Gower's work is extremely important in a number of ways for the period. Um, Not the least of which is that Gower was a trilingual poet, Uh, England, especially London at the end of the 14th century, was very much a trilingual culture with English as the vernacular and Latin as the language of education and French as the language of the court and the language really of art for much of the continental context. And we have long, uh, important works uh, in French, English and Latin from Gower, uh, whereas we only have the English works from, from, from Chaucer. The Confessio Matis, which we translated, is some 33,000 lines long, so it is a very long poem. Uh, it is one of the longest poems in the English language, which is probably why it's never been translated in its entirety and into verse before. Um, <clears throat> and it it is hard to categorize in terms of its genre, Um it partakes of of quite a number of genres but it is basically a frame narrative which starts out with the lover amans bemoaning the fact that his beloved does not uh, love him and he is visited by venus and cupid and venus sends him uh her priest named genius to try to cure him of his love sickness um genius is an interesting figure and the way that genius is going to attempt to cure him of his lovesickness is to hear his confession and to tell him a series of stories, uh, that will hopefully teach him how to love or how to not love. Um, the work is divided up into books with, um, eight books, uh, uh, seven books of which are devoted to the deadly sins. So, you know, avarice and and lust. Uh, and one book is devoted to the education of kings on how to be a good how to be a good king. Um, and so there are dozens and dozens and dozens of stories that are told through the course of the poem, and most of those are drawn from classical mythology, primarily Ovid, uh, from uh, biblical traditions, from historical texts. Uh, so it tends to be a very encyclopedic work uh, uh, that includes works that were very influential and important for many of the thinkers and writers of the period. Oh, I want to talk a little bit about um, What drew us to this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I believe there was some discussion at Kalamazoo.
1: Ah, yes. So um, I'm a member of the John Gower Society and uh, academic organization devoted to the study of Gower. And several years ago, the Gower Society at its annual meeting, uh, developed a working group to try to focus on getting Gower taught more in schools, especially in in secondary higher education, and it identified a number of impediments and issues related to teaching uh, Gower in in colleges and universities, one of which was the lack of a good complete translation into modern English. especially at the lower levels if you're teaching say freshman and sophomore where you might not be teaching middle english gower's middle english is not that difficult although it can be tricky at times uh but in many classes these days you don't teach the texts in the original middle english so having a complete translation would be very helpful for that um catherine and i had had been talking about this uh prior uh to that to that meeting um i should probably um we could Probably get out there at this point that that uh, Catherine and I are spouses, so we have um, a very close working relationship in that in that way. Um, and I had been talking with Catherine about trying to translate some of the Confessio, even. Prior to this, but I went to the Gower Society and offered our services and said if we were to undertake this project, which we knew would be pretty substantial given the length of the poem, is this something that the society would be interested in? And they embraced it wholeheartedly and have supported us um, throughout
2: you spoke a little bit about the division of the poem into these multiple books um so i'm curious about the division of labor because you brought up that you guys are um spouses so was there any friction or issues um being uh married to your co-editor and co-translator um and what was kind of the division of labor when translating this lengthy poem
0: well we um we set up in what we call the mead hall. It is a large den with a large TV on one end. And I am much the faster typist, so I was the scribe throughout. And I would cast onto the large TV screen. And we started out, um, we'd read a line and offer a couple of renditions. And after we had either agreed or fought about it and disagreed, I would put the line into the... Uh, Into um, into the uh, format, and Brian can maybe tell you some about the format that we used. It's uh, it's it's a bit sticky, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's quickly developed. Um, The longer we did this, uh, the more invisible Brian became behind this tower of reference books. You know, we kept adding book upon book. He always had the MED and the uh, OED, and now open and. And it would get so that I would translate 10 or 20 or 50 lines while he was going down a uh, reference rabbit hole. And then we would stop and go back, and Mm -hmm. he would perhaps correct my translation. And I read Middle English, but obviously not as well as he does. And, you know, we might argue about some of the lines that we had translated. Um, But eventually we'd usually reach some kind of consensus.
1: Yeah, I think the translation was very collaborative. Of course, Catherine is, um, you know, very much the poet, um, and she, her her poetry is uh, itself is quite formal usually. So uh, her her knowledge of, of the poetics at work in in Gower was. Um, just wonderful to 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 have in, in a project like this um but she was certainly going on and and her middle english is nothing to sneeze at either so she was doing pretty well kind of going through and then we would just kind of go back and 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 change things as we went along um the rest of the uh, you know the, the translation of course is only part of the edition um <clears throat> the rest of it uh included a number of, of of other kind of divisions if you want to talk some about
0: yes um and one of the main reasons Brian is first author is that he did all the heavy lifting on the notes, most of the intro, the name glossary. Uh, I mean, epic epic numbers of notes and everything. He talked with Andy Galloway about using his Latin glosses. I mean, there's really kind of no end to the, uh, the amount of what for me would be painful work. Yeah.
1: Because... <laughs> Um, yeah, and I found that I found that quite enjoyable kind of doing that, that, you know, that editorial work. Um, we also worked very closely together on the on the introduction, um, which is fairly substantial. And I provided the, the kind of Gower context and the historical context. And Catherine wrote, I think, very eloquently about uh, Gower's poetics and those sort of choices that we made in translating um, his his poetry. So we'd like to think of it as, as very collaborative. That it wasn't, you know, you know, we had different things that we we um, had different strengths in, but it was very collaborative.
2: It seems like such a lengthy collaborative process, and um, one that is uh, sort of uh, conflicted in some ways with pleasure and um, annoyance, depending on which side of the. Um, Uh, room you're on when it comes to either editorial glosses or poetics. Um, So could you speak a little bit more about um, some of the pleasures or the frustrations that you encountered um, besides the editorial glosses um, while working on this project?
1: Well, I think that I mean, if I start with some of the frustrations, um, our goal was to create a clear modern English translation. And uh, when we got around to the point where we were also putting it into octosyllabic lines, um, it it was it was sometimes difficult um, to try to render Gower's language into modern English when he was so good at taking a single word that had balances in middle English that we just don't have anymore. There was no single modern English word we could use. to replace that middle English. So that was, that was sort of a, um, a frustration. Um, and we were also frustrated sometimes with, with his lines, he could be a little, um, convoluted with his syntax. At times, uh, we were very fortunate to have colleagues and friends who were helping us out along the way. We had a social media, um, a group that we would turn to and, and post passages where we would say, we don't, Quite understand what's going on here can we have some help and they were wonderful about giving us feedback for that we've, we've um acknowledged those and the acknowledgments um we were very fortunate to have had the input of bob yeager who is uh, perhaps the expert in, in in gower these days and uh he read every single line of the of the translation and provided um assistance um it was frustrating sometimes to come up with a very what we thought was a very good translation and uh, bob's response was no, <laughs> it was like OK, we need to we need to go to that, go back to that. Um, I would say that the uh, the greatest pleasure was was working for me, was working together on this. We we loved working together on this. And when it came to an end, we were sad. We 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 really missed that kind of work. It was it was just wonderful in part, I think, because Gower is what he is right his texts talk about love it talks about you know how to behave in in relationships of all sorts and his approach to relationships is one based on kindness um and forgiveness and uh compassion uh, and it was it was lovely working with a spouse on a project like that
0: there were also uh, pleasurable moments uh, there's one of bob's notes further on he said you guys are getting better at this and uh yeah we felt <laughs> deeply honored at that point um but yes it was it, it was fun and i don't know quite how to put this without being struck by lightning but the uh, pandemic was very well timed for this project um i doubt we would be true now if there had not been all this time in which all you could do was kind of stay where you were and do what you did. And it passed the pandemic very comfortably. It seems like the perfect project
2: uh, for a pandemic, as, as fortunate or unfortunate as the pandemic happened to be in this
0: particular situation. So, um... powers, uh, Chaucer calls him Moral Gower, which uh, was not perhaps a bit of a two-edged compliment. <laughs> but it's true, actually, that, um, you know, you read this and you cannot help but apply it to your own situation. At one point during the proceedings, uh, we went to visit some family who were kind of frustrating and difficult. And fortuitously, we were working on book five with our well, wrath. And by the time we had sat down and translated a bit, I felt much
1: less wrathful.
0: It sounds like Gower
2: provides the perfect amount of advice for situations.
1: Maybe a bit too much advice at times, but but there's there's appropriate advice in there somewhere if you if you if you work at it. Yes.
0: Uh, genius is always uh, Haman says something and genius says, well. Let me offer you an instructive example, and by late in the pro in the process, you know, it would be like, so what do you want for dinner? And the other one would say, well, I have an instructive example here. <laughs> There were many instructive examples.
2: Um, So I want to talk a little bit more about um, the poetics, if that is okay um, with you. So why was it so important to render the lines as octosyllabic um, for this particular translation?
0: Uh, It is a poem. Um, and our initial version, when we went all through it the first time, first draft, yeah. we, we tried to kind of keep it in the ballpark, but we were not trying all that hard. And some of the lines render into modern octosyllabic or iambic tetrameter very, very easily. Others do not, uh, very much not easily.
1: Our first draft was was mm-hmm. very much focused on a literal mm-hmm. clear literal translation and we struggled with did we want this to be a prose translation did we want this to be a verse translation did
0: we want to try to do the whole thing and i am a tetrameter and we thought about it
1: yeah.
0: and it was tempting right i mean that that would have its charms i mean it would be so much closer to the music of the original but Yeah, at some point, um, as with the Tiller translation, when you start to prioritize the poetics over the literal content, you're going to get away from the literal content. And that's not what an undergraduate classroom needs. But we came to the end of the first version. and We prepared to sit down and go through it again and that was when it seemed to me that it was time to commit and try to do it at least in octosyllabic
1: lines. We, we finished that first run through. And, and as we went to go back through to do the the reread as of course we wanted to do no matter what, um, Catherine looked at me and said, let's make it octosyllabic lines. Um, and my response was to, to make a run to the liquor store, um, <laughs> where where I would prepare for for us (laughs) attempting to to go into autosyllabic lines. But as Catherine said, yeah, it's, um, uh, you know, I think it's important to reflect some of the poetry as much as you can. Uh, She referred to an earlier translation. uh, Part of the Confessio, parts of the Confessio, were translated in the early 60s by Terence Tiller, who was a a British poet um, and and translated into um, uh, rhymed iambic tetrameter. Uh, and it's a, it's a, a you know, it's, it's a perf- pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty translation. It is often very far off from what Gower is saying. And that is sort of problematic. The other thing is that, that Tiller was, was interested for some reason more in the, um, uh, the structure, the, the, the sections between the tales, the 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 conversations between genius and Amon's and my sense uh, in the classroom in particular is that students want the stories right they want they want and these are good stories you know we're talking you can't go wrong when you're you're pulling stories from abid and and from from the the romance tradition and from from um you know biblical stories uh it's just it's hard to go wrong with those with those stories um so uh we're we're wondering maybe you know we might kind of talk a little bit about that that process by reading a passage um and uh, one of the passages that struck us as, as Gower's more beautiful uh, sections um, comes from his retelling of the Jason and Medea story.
2: Mm.
1: And uh, it's <clears throat> it's where Medea is preparing to work her magic to try to... Uh, give Jason's father, Aeson, his youth back. Uh, Medea is a, a great classical figure in that kind of um, magic and witchcraft tradition. And uh, his poetry is is haunting and um, uh, powerful, I think, at this point. And we kind of hope that we're able Especially with the octosyllabic line to 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 kind of emulate this. So here's this is from Book Five, Um, and and she's she's and I'll, I'll read the Middle English and Catherine will do the our translation uh, as she's about to 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 start casting her spell. The world was still on every seed, with open head and foot all bar. Her hair to spread she gone to far upon her clothes, girt she was all speechless, and on the grass she glowed forth as an adra doth, none other ways she dunk off till she come to the fresh flood, and there a wheel she withstood. Thrice she turned here about, and thrice ache she gan doon loot, and in the flood she wet her hair, and thrice on the water there she gaspeth, with the dretching ond, and the she took her speech on hand, first she began to clap and call upward, unto the stairs all, to weend, to ire, to say, to land, she prayed, and ache held up her hand, to Ekates, and gone to Cree, which is goddess of sorcery, she said, helpeth at this nade, as ye maden mat, may to spade, one yasin calm the fleece to seka, so help may new ioka Withat With that she looketh, and was war, doon fro the ski there calm a char, the witch-dragons aboot to draw, And though she gone her head doon bow, and up she steed, Unfair and well, she drove forth both char and well, above in the air, among the skis. So that's, you know, calling forth the dragon to, to fly in the sky.
0: Yes, and this one, it was pretty, this passage, it was quite easy to kind of stick to it faithfully. We have some other examples of more difficult passages, um, but this one... Uh, In some cases, Gower shoves the subject 12 lines down, and we tried to bring it somewhere that a, uh, a new reader could find it. In this case, not at all. This is a very straightforward passage. The world was still all around her, barefoot and with uncovered head. She began to spread out her hair and then to girdle up her clothes, and silently upon the grass she glided forth like an adder. She chose no other direction until she reached the fresh flood tide. And there she stood a little while. Then she turned three times round about and three times she laid herself down and soaked all her hair in the flood and three times in the water there. She gasped breath like one drowning and afterwards began to speak. First, she began to cry and call upward toward all of all of the stars to wind, to air, to sea, to land. She prayed and also raised her hand and cried aloud to Hecate, who is goddess of sorcery. She said, ah, help me in my need. And as you helped me to succeed when Jason came to seek the fleece, so help me now, I do beseech. With that, she looked and was aware of a chariot from the sky, which was drawn forward by dragons. And then Medea bowed her head And mounted up and fair and well she drove forth chariot and wheel into the air among the skies
1: so hopefully you know when when people read this and and the 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 edition is primarily meant as a student edition but we we do hope that it could be used beyond that Mm -hmm. um i think that um i think that some of my colleagues who are professionals in the field some academics might find it useful for some of them, some of the passages in Gower that really are quite tricky. Um, and there are some, and we work very, very hard to tease through those. Um, but also we hope that it will appeal to a more general audience, a wider audience, people who are, um, interested in, uh, medieval literature, medieval culture, more generally, uh, the romance tradition, um, and even, you know, the retellings of these great stories um, from the past.
2: It's lovely to hear you read from the um, passage and uh, showcase one of the more easier passages. Do you guys have an example of one that would be more difficult or was more difficult in the process? We do. (laughs) (laughs) I would imagine.
0: (laughs) Yes. Well, we we take your pick, really. There are quite a lot, but um, I'm looking for the one with the fell fiends. Ah, here we are. Um, in this one, this is, this is book in, um, this is book eight, this is book eight yeah. yes, yeah. toward the end. Um, Gower is comparing, uh, God to the fallen angel Lucifer. Uh, do you want to read that, uh, us i stumble in middle English in front of everybody.
1: But Lucifer he put away with all the root apostasized of him that bend to him a lead. Which boot of heaven into the hell from Anglus into fiendish fell?
0: Yeah, um, and that it's not that it's unclear; it's that there are so many valences to the words he is actually using. Mm-hmm. Um, he he counter He he is. He ends up with that uh, image of fella, and- fiend. Fell fiends. Fell fiends. But there is this pun in there. Um, fell, it is, uh, can mean deceitful or treacherous, very appropriate for fiends. Uh, it can also mean fierce, cruel, terrible, and malevolent, also good for fiends. You know, I can feel the fell of Dark not Day kind of thing. But there is really no way to render it, because he is calling them fell fiends, but also fallen fiends. The right. I mean, both things, all at once. And Gower does this all the time. Yeah. And, you know, if you had 20 syllables, you still couldn't really explain it. So we wound up with something fairly basic. Who fell from heaven into hell, changing from angels to fell fiends. And it was tempting to keep the rhyme, but that's not how a contemporary reader would say it. And even so, we don't get the, I mean, I've used fell twice to kind of get that sense of fallen. But uh, it's, it's not the same.
1: And I would say that the, the, the bulk of the notes um, in the text itself aren't contextual or explanatory notes. They are notes about the language. So... One of the things that we've done in our edition is when we've come across a word where we really had to struggle to try to find a way to reflect Gower's um, ability to to call upon those valences. And also as a poet who is is as a writer who is versed in Latin and French, he's drawing upon those traditions as well. So, um you know, the bulk of the notes, will provide the original word or the original phrase from Middle English, and then note all of the different valences of that term, right? So that so that a reader or a student can hopefully decide for themselves how best to understand that, that passage is, given the limits of, of, of a modern English translation. So one of the other uh, passages that that we kind of struggled with is in one of the more well-known of, of Gower's tales, which is the tale of Florent, which serves as the basis for Chaucer's, uh, wife of Bath's tale. Um, it's the same kind of story. And most, most scholars, not all, but most scholars believe that, uh, Gower based his wife of Bath's tale on, on, um, Gower's Chaucer's based his on, on Gower's. So when in that story, when the knight brings home the loathly lady, um, the old woman to marry her, um, <clears throat> the narrator says, On privily with utter noise, he bringeth this fool great coys. He brings this foul great. And then we have this Middle English word coys. And, and coys, if you look it up in the Middle English dictionary, can mean rump or haunches, um, or it can be a disparaging term for an ugly woman. The issue is that. The attestation of a disparaging term for an ugly woman is basically Gower, right? I think it's also in Lydgate's Siege of Thebes, who probably knew Gower. Um, but but the saying that that Gower's that, that is the definition is sort of circular, right? Mm-hmm. But there are other attestations for the rump or haunches. So if we say he brings this foul great, and then you have this rump or haunch with you. Um, we had thought briefly about possibly translating it as he brought forth this great this this ugly piece of ass, which would be the kind of tenor of of modern English. but that would be a surprising thing for genius to say. it would be a real change in his character. so we ended up translating it as he brought this hideous monster. but we put in the note that, um, information about the word "coys," because for us to say oh that is not within genius's character to say something like that is an interpretation of of genius and we didn't want to force that into our translation so we wanted to make sure that that a reader could decide for themselves maybe they think that that genius is the kind of person who might eventually say this about an old woman um, and that would have implications for gender and possibly sexuality and, and, and those sorts of things.
2: Yeah. So that's an interesting translation uh, choice um, to try to not force an interpretation upon a text and to leave it kind of open for um, the reader's interpretations. So since this- since this is part of a team series um, and the edited edition's primary audience is um, both scholars, uh, both in medieval studies, and um, romance, um, and students, what sort of pedagogical considerations or challenges um, might you have faced in addition to um, this particular pejorative term um, that you deal with in your glosses or your translations or your
1: introduction? Well, we, we tried to um, we have a fairly substantial introduction that is basically the kind of introduction we would want our students to have. Um, so that was very much uh, on our minds, um, making sure that it contained a lot of contextual information for someone who may not be familiar at all with the period, much less Gower. Um, and it was similar for the notes we tried to balance what you might call very basic notes um, the kind of notes that that somebody who is in the field um, would not of course need um, with some of the more advanced notes when we thought it was uh, appropriate it's also one of the reasons we chose to have a name glossary and the name glossary at the end which runs to some 800 names 800 Seven to 800 proper names in the Confessio. Um, Each name is provided a a brief one sentence description of who this person is, just so that a beginning reader could look that name up in the back and say, okay, now I know, now I know who this is. And we didn't have to annotate it each time that name appeared uh, in multiple stories, perhaps throughout the course of this 33,000 line poem. Um, it's, it's one of the things I think that we were so pleased with for working with, the Medieval Institute, um, publications is their willingness to work with us on the format and the layout of, of the edition so that we could, um, have the entire work in one volume which was very important to us but also in a layout that allowed students to easily engage with the text but not be so encumbered with the um apparatus so
0: and uh in the name glossary brian strove to spell the names more or less as you would find them on wikipedia (laughs) for you know the 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 beleaguered undergrad who needed to go check a check a story
2: Uh, instead of trying to sift through multiple spellings of names.
0: And yeah. so- it's not yet regular. Right? Yeah. Even within Gower, they're not, they not always spelled the same.
1: And I think also our, our choice to um, really work on moving the subject and predicate up to the front of poetic senses, making sure it was really clear who was doing what.
0: Yes. Yeah. And- I should have looked harder for one of those very long passages where you're just reading along and 12 lines later, you know, and you're, you're kind of waiting to take a breath and you haven't found a main verb yet, then come on, Gower, come on, Gower. So we have tried to move the verb up. Um, we've got a bit from uh, book three here. Now, uh, do you want to read the
1: Little English? So uh, so this is just a brief four lines. Mm-hmm. Um Ha, wicked tongue, woe they be, for men saying that the hard bone, although himself in heaven a tongue breaketh it all to paces. And this is about wicked tongues and wicked speech.
0: Yes. Genius does not approve. Um, but what we have there, men say that the hard the hard bone, although it contains no bones, can be broken. A, a tongue breaks the, the bone all to pieces. And that's that's pretty convoluted for a contemporary reader. So we wound up saying, uh, for as men say, although the tongue has not a bone at all itself, yet it breaks hard bone to pieces. We were trying to clarify the, the referent there. And make it clear that the tongue is breaking the bone, not the bone breaking the tongue, which is kind of what it
1: sounds like in the original. yeah, he could be possibly positively miltonic at times with his yeah. poetic syntax. so
2: and very poetic at the same time, which is probably the the main struggle of of this translation effort. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about um the a uh, ghost in the room behind Gower's uh, poetry and bring up Chaucer. Um, so you played out that uh, Gower attempted to establish himself as a famous English poet um, and uh, was one who conversed with Chaucer, was friends with Chaucer. Um, and so I'm wondering, do you ever see this friendship um, between Chaucer and Gower as an influence on the poem? Um, or how does he, how does Chaucer goose
0: through a poem? In other words, how much time do you have?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a great question. It's, uh, um, it's an issue that that of course Scholars debate to to to, to great deal we, we know they knew each other um Chauer, Chaucer gave Gower his power of attorney when he went abroad um they reference each other in their works so um I mentioned earlier the tale of Florent as a a, a work that that Chaucer probably threw upon for his his wife the best tale but also um the Gower's Tale of Constance and Chaucer's Man of Law's Tale are, are comparable tales. They both tell the tale of Terrius Procne and Philomela in very, very different ways. Um, perhaps one of the more um, uh, t- apparent references in the Confessio, uh, the, one of the things that makes the Confessio Montus complicated to read, especially as a modern reader, is its intertextual nature within itself. Um, so there's the, there's the middle English poem, but there are interlinear Latin verses. There are, there are short Latin verses that come at certain places between the lines of the poem that serve as musings on the the topic at hand, basically. Um, there are also Latin glosses, uh, glosses that comment upon the content of the poem. Sometimes in some manuscripts, those glosses appear marginal and in the margins, in the the margins of the poem. And in other uh, manuscripts, they appear interlinearly, very much like the interlinear um, verses. But um, we felt since most scholars, I, I, I think it's fair to say, believe that those are authorial, that those are Gower's Verses and glosses, that it was important to include those in the the, 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 the text itself. So we've managed to do that using Andy Galloway's um, uh, English translations of the Latin, for which we're, we're, we're very grateful. Um, but co- another complicating factor is that the Confessio Montes uh, survives in different versions. There are some mm-hmm. earlier versions which are devoted to, uh, which are dedicated to Richard, Richard II. And then there are some later versions. Um, these versions uh, sometimes are referred to as recensions, early recensions, later recensions, Ricardian recensions, Lancaster recensions. Um, the later recensions are uh, dedicated to Henry of Lancaster, um, and most uh, most scholarship quotes from and uses the later recensions, the later versions, the Lancastrian. Uh, and we've used that as our base text for the, the translation, but we've also included all of the translations of all of the passages from the earlier versions that aren't in the later. So, um, one of the appendices has those translations. So you can actually see the difference between the earlier and later versions. In one of those versions, at the very end of the poem, um, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who hasn't read the poem, but 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 there's a great reveal at the end of the Confessio Amantis, and uh, Venus returns to talk to Amans, the lover. And poor Amans, through 30,000 plus lines of poetry, hasn't learned a whole lot about love. He's, he's still pretty much, He's he's in the doghouse and and Venus returns to to basically chastise him and say, look, dude, you're, you you got to give this up. I mean, you're hopeless. Right. Um, in the early version, in the Ricardian version, there is a great reference to Chaucer at this point when Venus says to Amans. Uh, I'll just read our modern, modern English translation. And greet Chaucer well when you meet as my disciple and poet. For in the flower of his youth, in sundry ways as he well could, he made many a glad ditty and song of love all for my sake. And now those songs fill all the land. So I'm especially obliged to him above every other. Therefore now, in his elder days, you shall tell this message to him that he, given his advanced years, should bring all of his work to an end, like a man who is my own clerk, and make his testament of love, just as you've made your shrift above, so that my court may record it. Gower is basically having Venus, in the poem, say to Chaucer, you've done really well by me, but you're getting a little long the tooth, Maybe you better stop writing about love. It's one of the most hilarious, like, disses in literary history, right? Um, so that that's one of the kind of great passages where where Chaucer gets gets a vote. Um, but beyond that, there's 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 a whole host of other um, uh, uh, things to think about in terms of Gower and Chaucer. Chaucer may well have based his portrait of the man of law upon Gower, because. Mm-hmm. We think Gower was involved in the law in some way, shape, or form. Um, and at the end of Troilus and Crusader, uh, Chaucer's great romance, um, he dedicates it to, to moral Gower as Catherine Sinnes. And um, sometimes I wonder if even that might have been a little dig, because um, all you have to do is tell somebody that that a, a piece of literature is moral to have them not read it, right? <laughs>
2: For sure. Um, so we've taken up quite a bit of your time, Brian and Catherine. Um, but before we end, I just want to ask why should Gower or why should people be reading Gower? Um, what does Gower teach us about being human?
1: What
0: well uh really you name it, he probably touches on it somewhere I and mean, he's uh thirty-three thousand lines. But, um I mean, and he, you could certainly say that um, he prioritizes kindness. Even allowing that his word "kinda" also means nature, he, there there is a great emphasis on kindness, on mercy. But also the and this is not something that is really directly addressed until arguably Book Eight. Um, Aman spends a lot of time kidding himself and he every time he genius will say so you know i've just told you underlines about the sin tell me my son are you guilty of it and a mom says oh no no not at all and then he will give you a lengthy steal, which in general often reveals that he kind of is and so this kind of delusion throughout it it arguably tells you, you know, to kind of be aware that we all kill ourselves. We all twist stories to our own ends. Um, you know that we have trouble taking responsibility for our own stuff, and maybe suggest that we try harder.
1: And and genius, I think, is is not that much better. Um, he's supposed to be educating Amans. Yeah and he is supposed to be telling amans you know so here's the story and this is what this story teaches you about love and about this sin and there are many times where we as as readers will read that and go no that's not that's not what it, what it teaches <laughs> at it doesn't all. There, there's something else going on here can't you see this and it, and it seems pretty clear that that um at least I believe it's pretty clear that that Gower wanted us to be skeptical of what both of these people were saying and to recognize that it's, it's very difficult for, for, for us as human beings to be self-reflexive and to know about ourselves. Um, and the stories themselves become the way that we learn things, that that it's it's less about what people tell us what something means than what we take from those, those stories. And one of the great things I think about the confessio is we can approach each of these stories individually. um, from that standpoint, we can, we can take away, um, different things from, from each of these stories, but also as a whole, when you put them all together and you read the entirety of, of the confessio, which we have now done, many more times than, than I, I kind of wish we had. Um, But, but uh, when you do that in its entirety, entirely, entirety, it, it teaches you something different and, and you um, you take something different away from it.
2: Yeah. It sounds like an amazing project um, to have worked on. Um, So I wanted to take the time to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it and I hope that you take care.
1: Thanks for having us. We appreciate it very much.